AI in Action is brought to you by Aulis International, covering your business's staffing, consulting, and networking needs. Our host brings you the leading minds in AI, sharing their story, their success, and their advice. Focusing on fast-tracking you to the top, AI in Action cuts through the hype to help you kickstart your data science career. To listen to the latest AI in Action podcast, head over to www.aldus.com forward slash podcast, or subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the AI in Action podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Kelly. Today, I'm delighted to have on the show, Marcus Mueller. Marcus is the lead data science engineer at Up42. Marcus, thank you for being on the show. Uh, Thanks a lot for having me, Anthony. So yeah, before we get into the podcast, Marcus, and we start talking a little bit more about applications that you're working on, tell us a little bit about you your background and you know what kind of led you down the role that you're in now and how you got into data science yeah i think i have to go back uh, in my past a tiny little bit to explain that so from a background perspective i'm a i studied geography mathematics and and computer science Um, but what brought me into data science so so the point is i took uh, basically five years off for my career a few years ago i went into development aid work which is a little bit like volunteering you know you go overseas uh, for four or five years and and try to help somewhere so in my case i went to indonesia and uh, was literally working in the middle of the jungle of borneo um, was doing some uh, mapping uh, with with the locals, uh, community mapping, a little bit of uh, work with uh, geographic information system and stuff. Um, so the problem with these activities is, so first of all, it was a great experience, but the problem with these activities is you have a little of a problem of getting back into your career afterwards, afterwards because um, if you start applying for jobs, uh, potential employers will ask you, like, what did you do for the last five years? You know, you, you were hanging around in the forest and playing with the GPS. And uh, so it's a bit of a challenge getting back. Um, okay, cool. And then, and then what led you then back onto the road of getting into industry? Yeah, so um, I was then in Indonesia and my time with development work was coming to an end. And I was saying, like, what do I do now? So I had to look around. I didn't want to go back to Europe right away. Um, and it turned out that the organization where I did my master's thesis, which was in New Zealand, Uh, they were looking for somebody with a profile similar to mine, like a mix of uh, software engineering, a little bit of research, but also some some other experiences. Let me put it that way. So the organization is called Landcare Research. It's one of the crown research institutes in New Zealand. So I applied there and um, that worked out. Uh, I'm not quite sure if it helped that people still remembered me from there or not. Uh, But anyway, it, it worked out. So we moved to New Zealand. I started my job there. And it was the first time that I came into contact with uh, with all the Python and R data science tooling. So I played around with NumPy, with Pandas, uh, Matplotlib on the Python side, with some uh, stuff in R, because my job was kind of a mix between helping other researchers, uh, scientific programming, you, you call it, but I also had the opportunity to do some research myself. 
so I, I, I found, or, or I, for myself, I found the world of machine learning and data science, and I was totally fascinated by it. I, I really liked it. So I tried to learn as much as I could uh, with, uh, with regard to these tools. There were researchers who were totally excited about uh, boosted regression trees. We did some stuff with random forests, uh, used support vector machines for satellite image interpretation, and so on and so on. So, so that was my starting point. Okay, cool. And then that led you to kind of where you are today at up 42. Yeah, there was still a step in between, but essentially the idea was um, uh, there were a number of reasons why, why I wanted to move back to Europe. And I got a job offered here in Berlin uh, with Planet, which is a provider of satellite imagery. Um, one of the cool kids around the block, uh, Super nice job. Uh, had a lot of fun there. Learned more about Python, image processing, and stuff. And then the opportunity with Up42 came up, and and that was uh, that was so exciting for me because Up42 is a startup. Uh, we are now one and a half years old, and uh, I would have been or I was the first uh, data scientist at Up42. So it allowed me basically, you know, to, to shape beginnings uh, from the start, to give the whole thing, the whole data science uh, topic in the organization, the directory, the direction that, that I was interested in, where, where I thought it should go. You know, it, it was the opportunity to shape something uh, for myself. Yeah. Well, and so tell us, um, you know, it's, a, it's an industry that you're experienced in as well, in the geospatial software. But how do you explain what you do? Uh, to somebody who's not so familiar with that industry? So Up42 is, uh, first of all, a subsidiary of Airbus. Uh, Airbus is one of the biggest providers of satellite imagery. And uh, our, our product is a developer platform and marketplace for geospatial algorithms and data. Now, why is that a thing? That's a thing because um, it's actually quite hard to get into uh, satellite image processing. And that's a, a, a number of reasons. Like, first of all, we are talking about a, a complex technical domain. So you need to, to, your, to know your stuff. Uh, you need to understand your tool sets. Uh, most of us work with Python. You need to be capable of doing image processing. You need to understand um, specific uh, characteristics of uh, satellites and so on and so on. But the real problem, if you get into that field or if you want to develop an application, is um, the real pro there are a number of problems, but there are like three major problems. And the first problem is access to the data. There are technical challenges there. Uh, so each of the different data sets comes with a different format, with different types, how the data is modeled. But there are also all the contractual problems there. So there are some free data sources, you're good to go and get them. But all the commercial data sources are provided by the different satellite image providers. And there are more and more commercial satellite image providers. And each one of them has a different idea how the contracts should look like, how to get into contact with them in the first place, um, how the licensing look like, and so on and so on. So let's assume you want to build a product and you want to combine satellite imagery from different data sources, you need to negotiate with a number of organizations. Uh, so that's a big obstacle. So that's like uh, the obstacle number one that, that we want to solve or at least uh, make easier. Um, the next problem is algorithms. 
we all know that algorithm development is a complex matter. And um, while it's okay to develop one or the other algorithm, there are so many out there and so many, so many um, different steps in the processing chain of a satellite image that you usually don't want to implement all of that yourself, right? So the, the, the access to the high-performing algorithms is the set, second obstacle that you will have. And let's assume you solve both of them. Then at the end, as a product developer, you still have the problem of scalability. So maybe you manage to run an algorithm on one satellite image, but most of the time you want to run it on hundreds or maybe thousands of satellite images, or at least different areas of the world. So the scalability of the models is the, is the third problem. Um, and that's, that's what we want to help with at UP42. So basically the idea is uh, that you come to us and you make a contract with us and we give you access to different types of data sources. We already model them in a way so that they are more or less homogeneous. You can find some ready-to-use algorithms on the platform and you can run your algorithms on the platform as well. Um, and and I, th I think that's kind of the best explanation of, of uh, what I'm doing and what we're doing by explaining what our company is trying to achieve. Okay, cool. And then where, where you sit in this? What's, what's your role at, at UP42? Um, so in my role at UP42, I started as a, as a senior data scientist, uh, which, was, uh, which means I was the only data scientist at UP42. Um, and then over time, so my, my role was basically implementing algorithms. Uh, so I implemented what we call building, uh, uh, what we call blocks, which is essentially dockerized programs that either fetch some data and put it on the platform or process some data. So I do some data engineering, um, but I also develop algorithms like analysis algorithms or how you can improve these data sets. Um, and but that was that was like uh, like my starting point. So over time, we could uh, grow the data science team at Up Forty Two. We are now four, and the next month we will have uh, two more engineers joining. And so now my job is a mix of uh, coordinating all the activities, like the lead part of the role. Um, I also still get my hands on uh, with the code. And then I also have kind of an internal consultancy function. I would I would put it that way. So I work together with, with sales, with marketing, with product as a, a subject matter expert on remote sensing and data science. Cool. Thanks for the overview, Marcus, and give us some more insights into into your role you play. So I wanted to ask you something on uh, computer vision, and, and you mentioned previously that it's it's really changed the way geospatial data and satellite imagery is done, um, purely down to the way how it's affected remote sensing data then as well. It's, it's quite complex, you mentioned, but I suppose, look, could you give us just a bit more of an overview as to, you know, what changes it's made, what it looked like before, and kind of what it is now? Before the whole machine learning and computer vision developments, um, so in the old times, uh, remote sensing analysis was done with a mix of uh, physical reasoning and uh, statistics. Um, so you try to understand very well your very specific problem in a very specific area of the world. And you try to reason, like, what are the physical characteristics of, a, of, a, of the Earth's surface and how it interacts uh, with... Uh, 
with electromagnetic radiation, uh, which is usually um, uh, sunlight or, or radar waves. Um, so that worked all kind of okay, but it was also the solutions were very confined to your one use case. Or to put it uh, in, in other words, these models generalized very badly. Um, so to really do something with uh, with algorithmic solutions in the, in the remote sensing industry, we 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 needed something new, and, and computer vision kind of provided us something new. I mean, not all problems are solved. We are still talking about a complex technical domain, but nowadays we have models with generalized much better. Um, like there are very strong object detection algorithms. You can find ships or cars with these algorithms. And while they're not, you know, we are still we are still not at the end of machine learning, but while most of the time these things work pretty well all over the whole globe. So if you have a, a model which is trained good enough, you end up with a solution which, is, which generalizes relatively well. And that that's like a game changer for the industry. This was just uh, not not possible before. Okay, and so does this really help you with uh, the topic that we spoke beforehand? You were talking about uh, land cover segmentation. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, related to that. So land cover segmentation, or or rather land cover classification, uh, from remote sensing perspective, is a classical problem. Uh, or you could even say that there are only like two or three classical problems. So, so one of them I already talked about is object detection. You know, you're looking for for a ship uh, or a car or an airplane. And the other one is that you want to find um, areas of the Earth's surface with some specific characteristics. Like, for example, you want to, to find buildings or you want to find forests. And land cover classification, as the remote sensing scientists call it, is doing just that. You try to create a map of the Earth's surface, which for each of the pixels tells you what is the land cover there. May it be grassland, might it be an urban structure, it might be water, and so on and so on. Now, in the computer vision domain, this problem is called image segmentation. So you take an image, and you divide it into different uh, different parts where each pixel gets a value. So in order to to reduce confusion about the terminology, we like to call this now uh, land cover segmentation. And that's essentially what I, what I just described. So uh, you're taking one of the modern and powerful um, computer vision algorithms, one of those image segmentation algorithms, and you apply it to the problem of land cover classification. Um, there are still quite a few problems with that. I talked before about generalization. And while those algorithms are now more or less there that they could generalize, the problem is the curse of all machine learning uh, algorithms, uh, the supervised algorithms, uh, the lack of training data. So we want to have uh, land cover mapping uh, at a, a very high resolution. We are talking about one meter or less. So one pixel is, is one meter or less. Uh, and training data for this kind of resolution is very scarce. The creation of this training data, like the labeling, is very expensive. So the challenge 
that uh, most of us face nowadays is how do we teach those algorithms to generalize well, starting with very confined training data sets. Like in our example, um, we want to have a land cover segmentation algorithm for the whole of Africa. But we will start off with some training data sets on specific, on specific uh, cities of, uh, of Africa. There's Dakar, there's Ouagadougou and others. And then with uh, machine learning magic, we hope to achieve um, uh, an algorithm that can map all, uh, all of Africa, more or less, to, to a reasonable degree. You also do some transfer learning and other and other black magic uh, of artificial yeah, intelligence. It's pretty difficult with that. You know, I come from Ireland. We're called the Emerald Oil. Our, our green grass will probably even be a different color to other countries' green grass. So it's not it's not a one size fits all solution either. Absolutely, absolutely. That, that's a problem. So that's why we're also we are starting off with uh, with one continent, which is already you know uh, that's already uh, quite quite a thing. But you cannot right away develop an algorithm that works all over the world, as you rightly uh, just said. Grass in Ireland looks different than than in other countries. The the differences might not be that large, but if you don't have training data that reflects these characteristics, your algorithm is bound to fail. So can I ask, what is or is there a potential block from you maybe getting training data from Google Maps and you know just, just, just recreating a building on top of that? Or is, it, is that just not scalable or probably too cost effective? Oh, sorry, not cost effective. Yeah, so so the problem with Google Maps is, is it's uh, what we what we like to call a visual or display product. So essentially, the underlying data is the high quality analytic imagery that you need to do an analysis. But in the end, it's different images are, are patched together and uh, the values are changed so that it looks overall consistent. So for analytic purposes. Google Maps is not really the choice of data that you want would like to use. Um, so you need to use uh, different data sets uh, for, for training data creation. And even if you would be able to use Google Earth, the manual labeling of, of features at the scale that we are talking, like individual buildings, uh, you know, that's an enormous amount of data. And some people share these data sets. Uh, maybe we'll do that in the future also. Uh, but there's also, you know, the commercial players uh, like to hold back what they invested to get out their products. So not everything, not every great data set out there will be shared with okay. the public. So you've you've kind of looked to, to come up with a solution for this and you've, you're, well, not recently, you're about to publish a paper on super resolution um, so you're going to apply deep learning on images uh, that will have the ability to give them a higher resolution um, very effectively specifically in your industry because it's about remote sensing um, and you can use it on satellite images and aerial photos do you want to tell us a little bit more about that how how you've done something like this and then how it's going to serve the two challenges uh, that you're currently facing uh, with object detection and then land cover segmentation. Yeah, that's one of my favorite topics right now. So I'm happy to talk about that. 
So super resolution is from the computer vision perspective, uh, one, of the, one of the classical problems, I would say. And the general idea is that you uh, take an image at a specified resolution, you apply a deep learning algorithm on top, and what you get out is an image as an, uh, at a higher resolution, resolution, which means it has higher quality and is sharper. Um, now the same applies for remotely sensed imagery. So let's say we have a very high resolution image already at a pixel resolution of maybe 50 centimeter. So that means uh, half a meter on the Earth's surface, uh, a square with half a meter uh, size on the Earth's surface is one pixel. Um, using super resolution, we want to achieve uh, even higher resolution. In, in our specific example, we try to achieve uh, a four-fold increase in resolution. So the 50 centimeter becomes 12.5 centimeter resolution. Now, um, we have, we, you, I have to be frank here, you know, everybody who's, talk about, who's talking about super resolution needs to be frank um, because a super resolved image at that resolution will never be the same quality as an image which was originally sensed at this resolution. So let's say an aerial image, super high resolution, 12.5 centimeter, will always be sharper than the one that I created by the super resolution algorithm. It's just by the nature of the physics uh, that happen here that you cannot achieve that. But what you can do with the super resolved images is help other algorithms because the super resolved image will result in sharper shapes. So if you look at the stuff visually, which is now very hard in the podcast, but if you have a look at one of these images and you have a look at a ship before and after, the shape will be much sharper. For, for your own visual system, uh, it will be much easier to identify your ships. And sometimes you can even tell what kind of ship it is. So there is something in the algorithm that allows object detection algorithms to better identify objects in the image. So it's kind of a pre-processing step for the analytic algorithms. And uh, yeah, so we, we looked in the computer vision domain, what's, uh, what's currently, what are the top algorithms? We tried out several alternatives. We had to do uh, quite a bit of adjustments because the computer vision domain works with uh, three band images, you know, normal photographs with RGB channels and eight bit images, while the remote sensing industry has analytic images which, are, which have more bands, in our case, four bands. There was a near infrared band as well. And there is also a different bit depth. So we usually work with a 12 bit image depth. And um, as many of the algorithms and, and frameworks are tied to these three band 8-bit images, we always need to do a, a quite a bit of adjustment until uh, the algorithms also work with the data that we like to work with. Okay, and, and so that's how you're, so, so you're looking to use that to, to tackle um, your two challenges that you're facing now of line cover segmentation and then uh, object detection. So as you mentioned, you know, finding ships, planes, cars. Yeah, exactly. These are just uh, a few examples of algorithms which, uh, which you can find on Up42. Uh, there are these detection algorithms, um, ships and so on, uh, building detections. There are quite a few algorithms uh, for change detection. That's also one of, the, one of the major use cases. You want to see, people want to see where something changes. 
prime example is deforestation or, or growth um, settlement growth, um, illegal buildings, all kinds of things that you can see by, by change detection. Um, what kind of algorithms do or other algorithms do we have? We have some based on, uh, on optical imagery, but also some radar imagery analytic stuff. That's, that's again a topic of its own. So radar imagery allows you to also take images uh, when there are clouds. Clouds uh, are one of the major uh, obstacles for for remote sensing okay. for optical remote and sensing. So look, that's that's a lot of a lot of really good work, a lot of good image data then as well. What are you using on the technology side? Um, I suppose to optimize performance. For optimizing performance, uh, so far we didn't do too much uh, in that corner yet. I mean, um, besides uh, besides the usual. Um, the, the usual thing that you do, like analyzing where, where most of your time is getting lost and then um, hand optimizing your algorithm. So we did some of that. Uh, we need to get our super resolution uh, algorithm a little bit faster. And, and that's the first thing where we started. We then also um, played around with uh, Tensor, TensorFlow RT, that's the name, exactly. Uh, but, but I need to say the gains that we found with TensorFlow RT were not worth um, the disadvantages. So I think the other op the other optimizations that we did ended up with like a gain of 10 to 20 percent runtime, and TensorFlow RT then added another five percent. But we would have to rewrite a lot of our code because at the time when we did it, I'm not quite sure if that's true anymore. But at that time, TensorFlow RT was still tied to TensorFlow One. And we are using TensorFlow version two, so we would have to do a lot of object mappings between the two versions, and in land, and we decided that the performance gain was not worth the added code complexity. Okay, right. No, look, that's spot on. And uh, so, look, Marcus, we're coming up to time, so we'll finish off on on one one more question. What do you think, in in your opinion, is going to be one of the most breakthrough technologies? That's going to affect your industry, um, whether it's out there now already, or if you, or if you see something that's just come in early stages and it hasn't exactly hit the heights that it's expected to hit. Yeah. So uh, I kind of touched it uh, beforehand. So we are working a lot on generalization right now, as many others. And why is that? Because creation of high, high quality training data is a problem. Um, a challenge for all of us. So first of all, we will have uh, better tools for creation of training data. So many of the labeling tools, you can already see them, that the labeling tools start to have uh, a forecast in them right away. So if you're labeling stuff, you can see right away uh, what that does to the model to some degree. Um, and, and there are also QA tools integrated. Like that. that's one thing. But I think the big, the big major next thing will be that these algorithms learn to be not fully supervised anymore. We still have to see how this will look like, but if you look at, um, if you listen to the to the drivers, uh, the, 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 big, uh, the big scientists um, of the artificial intelligence domain, they are talking a lot about it, that we will have algorithms which can devise for more from the data without having to feed them large amounts of labeled data um, as a first step. Okay, excellent. Oh, look, that's that's perfect, Marcus. And 
that does take us for time for today. Um, so you are listening to the AI in Action podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Kelly. Today's guest was Marcus Muller from Up42. He is the lead data science engineer there. Marcus, thank you for being on the show. It was great to have you. Thanks a lot, Anthony. It was a pleasure. AI in Action is brought to you by Aldus International, covering your business's staffing, consulting, and networking needs. Aldus offer an exec search program. Aldus can help you discover how data science and AI can transform your company. With our unrivaled network of C-suite executives and senior AI professionals, we offer retained search services across the US and Europe. Get the Aldus advantage. Become a member of the Aldus community and enjoy some of the following. AI meetups. Once a month, our community gathers to listen to some of the leading experts in the world of data science and AI. Our speakers come from all over the world, including Dublin, Boston, and Frankfurt. We also have our AI mentors. Our experts will provide mentoring to all those members. And don't forget our AI in Action podcast. Each week, we have guests from all over the world talking us through their education, career, and more. Become an Aldus member and get the Aldus advantage. For more information and to sign up for our newsletter, log on to www.aldus.com. That's www.aldus.com. Aldus International, empowering through AI.